Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're continuing in point number two of seven sets of prophetic terms, important prophetic terms that I believe we need to have a good understanding of before we launch into our next teaching series, where we're going to look at the next 30 prophetic events, and I think they're the last 30 events that start from basically today, even though there's no event occurring today, we need to talk about today because some people are out there saying that we are in uh, one or more of those 30 prophetic events today, and I do not believe that's true according to God's Word. But we will look at the 30 events uh, in as best a chronological order as I can possibly understand from my study of the Word And we will look at each one of those uh, in a little bit of detail. And the reason I say a little bit, because we want to be able to get through all 30 of these, and each one of them is is important either to Israel or to the church or to God's overall plan. And then uh, as we go forward, and particularly uh, if I get feedback from you who are listening that say, hey, uh, of these 30 events, could you really focus in on this, this, or this, and I'd be glad to do that because uh, we could actually take each one of those events, uh, those 30 prophetic events, and and turn them into a teaching series, actually. So that's uh, that's a possibility going forward. But I wanted to uh, make sure that we were grounded in the Scriptures relative to uh, what I consider to be seven sets of important prophetic terms that... Um, People can very easily read them uh, and think that they are the same thing, talking about the same person or the same event, and be quite misled. And there are people with um, letters after their name uh, from academic institutions that have done just that. And um, I hopefully uh, would be able to uh, uh, direct you, if you will, guide you, to see, because you have to do it yourself uh, with the leading of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be able to go into the Scriptures yourself and see them for yourself. Um, it is a disservice, I believe, to God and to fellow man for you as a reader of the Bible um, to not use the Bible uh, as your source of foundation of understanding but to say, well, my pastor said this, or my Sunday school teacher said that. There's nothing wrong with that, because they are the ones that are there to help us open our eyes and to see the Scriptures and the foundations of the Scriptures and to learn discernment. But the real fruit of learning and discernment is to be able to say it yourself with confidence. This is such and such because God said it, in his word, and let me show it to you. That's the real goal of exploring Bible prophecy, is to show you how to explore God's word um, 
using the inductive study method, which is basically who, what, where, when, why, and how. Very simple. I mean, it's taught, that method is taught in seminary. It frankly helps you in schoolwork, or it can help you even in your office environment, depending on how the, um, what the type of work is. But when you take any subject matter, this helps you to break it down and to understand uh, so that you don't misapply or misunderstand phrases or passages or even books, because that is happening quite a bit, unfortunately, in the churches, and even more unfortunately, it's getting worse, because people are lazy. They don't want to take the time to study their precious word. This is the word of God, from creator God to you. And when you hold your Bible in your hands, you are holding nothing more, nothing less than the greatest theologians have ever had. Because if they have a library full of books, those books are written by man, but you're holding the book written by God. And this is the one true book, and that's why we use the one true book in all of our passages, all of our programs, and all of our series here at Exploring Bible Prophecy. We only use God's Word to do it. Uh, so let's let's continue on here, and we're in um, the second set of seven sets of terms. The second set, or point number two, where we have been comparing and contrasting the day of Christ with the day of the Lord. And the day of Christ has to do with the rapture of the church. It's a very positive time, a very uplifting time, a very encouraging time that we want to encourage each other uh, as we talk about it. And then contrary to that is the day of the Lord. It's a period of time where the church is not going to be here. The church will be raptured to heaven. We will have been wedded to Christ. We will be enjoying uh, the wedding feast, as it were, in this, in this, during those seven years. And then we will come back with our husband. We will be the wife of Christ at that point, and we will come back with him, and he's going to come back, and he's going to judge as part of what is called the day of the Lord. And we've seen over and over again through Isaiah and Ezekiel, and I'm reading off my worksheet that you can get uh, by downloading it from this station's website under Exploring Bible Prophecy. Uh, but we've been in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Amos, and we were in Obadiah last time. And in every time and in every place we've gone, you can see that it's a time of foreboding and gloom and darkness and judgment and death and destruction. And, you know, I start to run out of adjectives to describe. Uh, uh, the Bible doesn't seem to, though. As I've mentioned a couple of times, I actually have a uh, series on the day of the Lord using the 70-plus passages or descriptive passages that deal with the day of the Lord. So this is something that's going to happen. It's prophesied. Israel knows it's going to happen, and it's going to be a terrible time. And, and praise God through uh, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and our belief in that, we do not have to see or experience that time. So we were in Obadiah. And that is one of the 12 minor prophets. And uh, if you found Daniel and then moved to the right into the beginning of the minor prophets, you found Hosea. Then we were in Joel next. And then right next to Joel going to the right, we were in Amos. And now we, and then we went to, uh, to Obadiah. Now we need to move a few more chapters, excuse me, a few more books 
in the um, Minor Prophets series and move over into Zephaniah towards the end of those 12 Minor Prophets. Uh, and again, minor in word count, not in content or, or effectiveness. And in fact, you think of Isaiah and Jeremiah, you think about these great prophecies, Daniel and so forth, and Ezekiel. But interestingly enough, um, the book of Micah, the book of Micah in the Minor Prophet series, proportionately, based on word count, has more prophecy than any other book in the Bible. Uh, and that's uh, that's an interesting, and uh, that really opened my eyes to the understanding that we, you know, it's a shame we have to use the word minor prophet and, and major prophet, but it only has to do with word count, not with the impact and the, the discernment and knowledge we get from studying these books. And, and Zephaniah is another great example. It's a book that we hear very little about, but it is so full of good prophecy um, that we should be studying this book. So... I pray that you found Zephaniah in your book, uh, in your Bible, uh, in the uh, 12 Minor Prophets area. And we want to look at verses 7 to 18. So it's a little bit of a passage here, but I think it's important to gain understanding, to gain background, to gain context of this day of the Lord as Zephaniah prophesies it to us through the leading of the Holy Spirit. So starting in Zephaniah chapter 1. And starting at verse 7, it says, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Be silent before the Lord God, exclamation point. So he's making an impactful point. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day all who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be a sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter and a loud crash from the hills. These are areas and specific locations in Jerusalem. Verse 11, Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Let me say that again. Who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Verse 13, Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and and thick darkness, 
Verse 16, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's a very somber passage, a very somber prophecy that the Holy Spirit is giving us through the prophet, uh, the writer here, Zephaniah. That's intended for Israel, but it's intended for all unbelievers because it's an admonition to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and become a part of the church and know that you will avoid all of this. This is being applied and or written to specifically those people and, and mo- most directly those Jews, but Gentiles as well, but the Jews and the Gentiles who will be living during the tribulation period, this terrible time that was prophesied that would come about uh, just before the Lord judges the earth. And there's going to be this terrible time of destruction and and wrath and anguish and crying out and uh, walking around like you're blind because you're just overwhelmed with the, the, the sense that there's going to be Uh, the consequence of judgment, and frankly, final judgment. As Matthew chapter 24 tells us around verse 30, it says, the whole world will mourn when they see the sign of the Son of Man coming because they know that this means the ultimate judgment is coming upon them, and it's going to be directed toward them. And uh, they basically uh, have some sense, if not knowledge, some sense that this is going to be very bad, very bad for them when it when it when it happens. So this is uh, the book of Obadiah, and as we've seen with Amos and Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and certainly others, uh, it's the same basic phraseology over and over again. And these are men who did not, in most cases, did not know each other because they lived in different ages, different times, some divided by a century or more, that uh, there's no way they could have colluded with each other. Uh, And it's clearly the leading of the Holy Spirit that has allowed them to write these passages, all saying, all prophesying the same judgment and the results of those judgments for the people. So let's take a look at our last Old Testament uh, passage before we move into some New Testament relative to the day of the Lord. And let's go to the last book of the Old Testament. So we're in Zephaniah, and then you go to Haggai, and then you get to Zechariah, the 14 chapters of Zechariah. We spend a lot of time there in our study of prophecy. And we go to the last book, the book of Malachi, and this was written about 400 400 B.C., this was pretty much the last uh, 
words of God before he stopped talking to Israel for 400 years. And at the end of those 400 years is when Christ came. So we're in Malachi, and I'd like us to go to Malachi chapter 4. And again, this is the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. And it says uh, in verse 5, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, this is God speaking, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and their the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And isn't it interesting, and I've read where Hebrew scholars are bothered by this, and they actually reorder the words of Malachi chapter 4, because they didn't want the last book of the last the last word of the last book in their their Bible to be the word curse, <laughs> because that's God's threat that he would smite the land with a curse if they didn't accept Elijah. And the point is that Elijah was promised the first time and they refused. So John the Baptist was Elijah at that point. He was the promised messenger. And if you're in Malachi, if you look over there in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Well, that was Malachi originally in the Old Testament, but because the the Israelites refused to accept Christ, the one who came was John the Baptist. But when the actual tribulation takes place in a yet future period of time, it will actually be Elijah resurrected from the Old Testament, he will come back and he will be uh, the promised prophet. In fact, when you read about the Antichrist, you have the uh, evil, triune, evil Godhead, where you have Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And the false prophet will fool the people in the tribulation into thinking that he is the promised Elijah. And that's one of the reasons why the Jews will accept the Antichrist and the false prophet as the true Christ and the true prophet Elijah for a period uh, during the first half until they realize that the Antichrist really is the Antichrist. So that's a uh, a subject for uh, another day, but we have now finished the Old Testament passages that I have listed there in our worksheet to look at the day of the Lord, and we're going to spend some time in our next program in the New Testament, and then we're going to move on to our third set of terms, the gospel of the kingdom, and compare and contrast that with the gospel of grace for the church age. But let's move on into our Q&A, and we are getting to the end of our discussion here of how the Holy Spirit works during the tribulation, which was the subject that Rich in Indian Springs had asked us in the beginning how the Holy Spirit works, and his concern was that there was no Holy Spirit in the tribulation because Second um, Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the restrainer of evil, which is the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the way, taken off the earth, so that the Antichrist can be revealed and let loose to do his terrible things for that seven-year tribulation period. 
And uh, we've been making the point all along here about how the Holy Spirit works. And in the Old Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people but would leave people when they turned to unrighteousness and iniquity. During the church age, the Holy Spirit came on a believer and stayed with that believer forever so that when a believer uh, fell into sin through the temptation of the of uh, Satan, they could turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. And First John tells us that Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. So the Holy Spirit never left, never leaves the church. But when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, that is the church, because the Holy Spirit indwells the church forever. The church will be taken out of the way, taken off the earth to heaven, so that the um, Antichrist can be revealed. But during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit will be back in a general way, acting as he did in the Old Testament with people that are righteous, but they must maintain that righteousness to the end of the tribulation, to the last day, the day of judgment. And if they're found righteous by the Lord, they will receive eternal life. If they're counted as unrighteous, they will be sent to to hell, waiting the great white throne judgment. So we had finished up in John chapter 6 with some passages talking about how Jesus would raise up people at the last day, raising up from the dead, which would basically be uh, those Old Testament saints, because he was not talking about the church age. He was not referring to a yet future um, tribulation and day of judgment. He was talking about right then on the earth, because he was offering the kingdom right then to the Israelites. They had not yet fully rejected him and his offer. So the tribulation he's talking of and the last day that he's talking of in John 6 would have occurred right there in their lifetimes if they had accepted him as the king because it was prophesied that a tribulation and a judgment must take place and then he would set up his full kingdom with Israel as the preeminent people. That, of course, will take place, but it's yet future now because of Israel's rejection of Jesus the first time. So we talked about the Old Testament saints being resurrected, and that happens at the end of the tribulation, as we learned in Daniel, and we learn in John chapter 6 and several verses there. And we went to Hebrews 39 to make a point about what he was talking about when he talked about resurrecting these people, because he's referring to all the people all the way back to Adam and Eve and to Abel, not Cain, obviously, but all the way back to Adam and Eve and Abel. So we went to Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, just to make a point uh, here, you see that um, in verse 4 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, by faith Abel. So you can see it goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, talking about people who gained approval of God through their faith an understanding that they were sinners, that they needed to have a sacrifice made for them, and that they could they could spiritually, if you will, see into the future that this would take place, but it did not take place during their lifetimes. So that's the background for verses 39 and 40, the very end of that same Hebrews chapter 11. And we touched on that in our last program, and it says in verse 39, and all these, referring to all the Old Testament people who through faith 
were to uh, receive eternal life at some point in their, some point in the future, they would receive approval and eternal life. It says in verse 39, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What they're referring to is the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament saints, spirits, the spirits of the Old Testament saints were in Abraham's bosom in the earth, under the earth. Remember in the passage in Luke about the rich man and Lazarus, and the the rich man went to the Hades, uh, the evil side, the tormented side, and Lazarus was leaning up against Abraham's bosom as an image of the blissful nature of the spirits of the departed who had faith in God and faith in the fact that they were sinners and needed a Savior. When Jesus died and was resurrected, he went down into Abraham's bosom and took all of those spirits of the Old Testament faithful and took them to heaven, thereby fulfilling the promise that's talked about there at the end of verse 39 the promise that they would be completed and made perfect, but it would not happen until Jesus actually came to the earth. So that's what it's talking about, that he would raise them up at the last day to receive eternal life. We now want to move on and kind of wrap this up here and talk about Israel during the tribulation. We just finished talking about all the Old Testament saints that would be resurrected. So we want to look particularly at Israel, since we know from several passages that a righteous remnant of Israelites will survive this tribulation, and those people are the ones who will receive all of the Old Testament covenant promises from God. And these people, these Jews, in the second half are protected by God, and they're actually moved off. um, The righteous remnant is moved into a place that we believe is called Petra in Jordan, where they will be miraculously protected by God for that second half, um, which is the worst part of the tribulation for the Jews. And like the Gentiles who make it through that tribulation, those who maintain their righteousness to the end of the tribulation, those Jews and those Gentiles that are counted as righteous, will uh, receive eternal life from God through their righteousness. But the key thing is they have to maintain their righteousness They have to maintain the Holy Spirit through that whole time. And it says, with all of this as a background, all that we've talked about over these number of programs, we can confidently answer your question, Rich, by stating that the Holy Spirit will be working all during that terrible seven-year tribulation, and unrighteous people will come to faith and receive the gift of eternal life. However, Coming to faith during the tribulation, and this is the point I want to make, that coming to faith will be very, very difficult. Most who come to faith will be killed for their faith and become what are called tribulation saints, described in Revelation 20, verse 4. And those who survive the tribulation must have maintained their faith to the very end of the tribulation in order to receive that eternal life. The Holy Spirit will never leave the earth because God's precious remnant of righteous people 
Jew and Gentile, have been and always will be on the earth. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.